0: This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. My name is Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows. And Stinky Lulu Says is the place where I get my say about what I see. In this installment, Stinky Lulu has something to say about What Would Crazy Horse Do? By Larissa Fasthorse, directed by Courtney Moeller, as presented by the Department of Theater and Dance at Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California, in the first two weeks of May 2016. Now, normally I talk on this podcast mostly about contemporary by professional theater makers, mostly in New York. And I also usually talk about shows I've seen in the last week or so. In this case, I'm thinking back more than two months to this production I saw at Santa Clara University um, in early May. Mostly because, in some ways, seeing this production is one of the triggers for inspiring me to create this podcast in the first place. And also because I keep thinking about Courtney Moeller's staging of Larissa horses play. See, one of the things that happens when you're a theater professor, if you're lucky, you get sometimes invited to go to other campuses and do talks, give workshops, offer presentations, whatever. In this case, my colleague, Courtney Moeller, who is an assistant professor of theater at Santa Clara University, she invited me to come give a talk, a talk about my work. And so we were discussing the dates and the possibilities. And as it turned out, I noticed that Courtney was directing a show that I was interested in seeing, What Would Crazy Horse Do by Larissa Fast Horse? And so we we arranged things. So that I could arrive a day or so early and see the show before giving my talk, and really, I'm so glad I did because I was really thrilled to be able to see this production, and in no small part because I was very interested to see the work of Larissa Fasthorse on stage. I'd been interested in Fasthorse's work for some time, and this play in particular, I'd been th- no- I'd known about since its inclusion on the inaugural Kilroys list in 2014. The Kilroy's List is an annual list of, quote, excellent but unproduced plays by female and trans writers. That drops each spring. Each year's list is compiled from an industry-wide survey of of people like artistic directors and producers and literary managers and dramaturgs and playwrights and professors, all of whom had to have read at least 40 new plays by women or trans writers. And from that, they're each invited to offer their five recommendations of the play that they consider to be the most interesting but still unproduced play by a woman or by a woman-identified or trans-identified writer. And this list then is posted publicly as sort of a friendly assist to any and all producers who might actually be interested in dedicating productions to ending ongoing and enduring patterns of underrepresentation in the professional theater. I, I was struck by Moeller's decision to stage Fast Horse's play, which has yet to receive its world premiere, to stage that play in a university context because it struck me as a very deft deployment by Moeller of the formidable resources that go into any and every college production put in service of the staging of a finished new play of acknowledged excellence that was written by a living playwright who in this case happened to be a woman of Native American descent. And I thought that this did an end run around the normal patterns of play script selection for university seasons. Usually when a university stages a play, it does so usually three or four years after its major brush with fame on Broadway or in the regional theaters, after the play has then been licensed for amateur presentation. And it's therefore in that trickle-down moment that university theaters are able to take up a production. In this case, what I thought was very interesting was that Moeller, in working with Fast Horse and her reference, representatives found a way to join this conversation of new play development in a way that that was quite powerful and quite productive, especially when I saw the play on stage. Now, a word about Larissa Fast Horse's play, What Would Crazy Horse Do? It's a four-person play set in, in the way many contemporary plays are, in an interior of a living space. But unlike most such plays that I see in New York, it's not a New York apartment or it's not a well-appointed apartment. It's a humble home that is on Indian lands. The play begins as two characters, Journey Good Eagle and Calvin Good Eagle arrive home after the funeral of their grandfather. Journey is a young woman and her twin brother, Calvin Goodeagle arrive home and are beginning to puzzle through the conundrum they find themselves in. Not only are they twins living very different paths, journeys, living sort of a tough life on the res, where Calvin is off doing his PhD in some version of Native American Studies at Yale, but they're coming back as twins in the family, also understanding that they have the peculiar burden of being the only two surviving full-blood members of what is in Fast Horse's play, the fictional Marahota tribe. So they uh, come back together in this moment of grief and transformation trying to understand what the world looks like without the guiding star in their life, their grandfather. And what is rekindled is a childhood suicide pact that each of them today are returning to his commitment to each other, but also contemplating this fantasy of a suicide pact as a, a form of political protest art, like what would happen if they were to do this pact and what would it say about the brutalities experienced by American tribal communities. So there's this peculiar moment of grief and anger and anguish that we see these characters in and then, as happens in many American plays, a knock at the door. And who is at the door but Evan Atwood, crisp suit, red hair, and who's escorted by a rougher guy, long hair, beard, also red hair. And we don't really know if this is like Publisher's Clearinghouse arriving to say that they won the lottery or uh, some other kind of official saying that they have to do something else. Something's very odd about these two white folk arriving at the door of the Good Eagle home. And what ends up coming out is even stranger than one might expect, because Evan Atwood is is not simply a well-put-together, self-possessed white woman. She happens to be the granddaughter of the founder of a major branch of the American clan, who is poised to take on the presidency of, this clan in, of the clan in a way that she hopes will be make it a leading presence and force in American politics. And she has come because Calvin and Journey's grandfather had agreed to appear at their forthcoming rally as, in some ways, a memorial and tribute to Evan's grandfather. So both of these grandfathers had appeared at a Klan rally together in the 1920s. And Evan had been in communication with Journey and Calvin's grandfather about him reprising that role, as it were, at their fourth convention. And Evan was, with her bodyguard rebel, here to talk to to Grandfather Good Eagle about making this event come to pass. And when she arrives, she too learns the news of Grandfather Good Eagle's passing. And what then unfolds in a way that is just classic American drama? This this complicated and fascinating story of shifting alliances, shifting understandings, shifting measures of trust and mistrust, as these four characters with these different senses of who believes who, who's telling the truth, what obligations are the enduring obligations when it's when it's learned that grandfather owes Evan some money, what is the obligation of Journey and Calvin to uh, on the one hand make good on their grandfather's debts, on the other hand make good on his final promise, like all of these things things. things come in and Rebel who's rowdy and tough and macho the ways in which he, as a combat veteran who is very lucid about his own experience of PTSD, begins to recognize in Journey the experiences of PTSD that she is experiencing simply from her survival of life and the rest. So it's a complicated world that evolves in all kinds of ways, all with this question of what will Calvin and Journey do with their suicide pact? What do they make of Evan's claim that their notion of race suicide is not altogether different from hers? All of these questions are stirred and, and activated and made made very palpably human and real, as guns are shot, as, as wounds, both psychic and physical, are inflicted. It's a captivating and compelling play that, that, that finishes with a shockingly timely flourish. Indeed, I had to keep reminding myself that this play had been polished and was in full circulation to be acknowledged by the Kilroys in 2014, because as I watched the play, it felt like it was of the moment we we're living in with this political divide in 2016. It just felt like it was as contemporary and as timely as it could have possibly been. So there's something. Extraordinary prescient about Larissa Fast Horse's play and its relevance to the way political divides, especially political discourses born out of a sense of grievance, as a sense of shared trauma and anguish, find themselves articulating forcefully in a space of very limited or bad options. So it's um it's a it's a fascinating play that frankly I, I'm shocked is not being produced everywhere because it just seems to be speaking so potently to our contemporary moment. But the play is not being produced everywhere. Indeed, it we can look forward to the play receiving its official world premiere next year at Kansas City Rep, but Moeller's staging, which is very carefully framed as a pre-premiere workshop production, Mohler's staging of What Would Crazy Horse Do, in a very smart and sophisticated way, linked Santa Clara University stage to the contemporary professional theater and did so in ways that were both pedagogically smart and culturally responsible. And this came very clear to me in the post-show conversation with Fast Horse and Moeller and the cast and crew that happened immediately after the performance I saw. That this production integrated the often competing priorities that guide every university theater production. The tension between seeking artistic excellence while offering pre-professional training, all in the context of a pedagogical practice that tries to guide itself with some measure of cultural accountability or respect. Responsibility. Moeller's production melded those competing obligations in a holistic fashion that was clearly transformative for the students involved, and it was Moeller's balance of artistry and professionalism and pedagogy and cultural responsibility. This was especially clear in what I found to be perhaps the most provocative and powerful choice that was made in staging what would Crazy Horse do. Santa Clara University is not a large school, and it doesn't have an especially sizable Native American student population, and nor are those few Native American students especially involved in the theater department. So what Moeller encountered was what many theater departments encounter when interested in staging works from marginalized experiences or voices of, do we have the actors for that? And as Moeller approached this play, she adopted a casting strategy for What Would Crazy Horse Do?, a play which, as we've noted, features two Native American principal roles in a four-person play. And Moeller acknowledged her strategy in a program note. Moeller, who is herself Santa Barbara Chumash, forthrightly acknowledged that, quote, This is, I'm reading from her program note. Our two Native American characters are played by actors that do not identify as Native American. Moeller went on to emphasize, I feel strongly that Native stories have to be respectfully told, even in circumstances that the best actors for the parts are not Native. I hope when you see the play and consider its themes, you will see a certain value in my choice to cast two talented actors who each identify as mixed race. Muller's strategic decision, which she made in clear and open consultation with Larissa Fasthorse, who is herself of the Sikangu Lakota nation, Muller's decision deploys what performance historian and current president of the Association for Theater in Higher Education, Patricia Ibarra, has termed coalitional casting. In Ibarra's configuration, coalitional casting is a moment wherein, quote, an act of becoming a culturally different person is also part of a, quote, an act of committing to the cause of telling a marginalized story. This idea of coalitional casting disrupts our conventional assumptions that casting needs to match mimetically or authentically onto the body of the act, but also does so in a way that resists the sort of simple shoddy shorthand of racial mimicry. Moeller's confident precision in executing this coalitional casting strategy, which as yet remains at the vanguard of contemporary theater practice, was especially impressive to me because I think it is an essential tactic that is a place where the university theater has almost an obligation to figure out other ways of strategizing the problems of casting so as not to maintain the traditional silences that accrue on a, on a stage because we don't have the actors for that. But her choice to do so, and to do so with a very clear anchored ethic in her own sense of responsibility, and in Indeed, in courses that she was teaching of decolonization at the same time that she was offering this, this production opportunity, this tactic of how Courtney Muller u- leveraged her status as a university professor and university theater director to open up not only new creative tactics, but new critical tactics for understanding what is it we do when we put on a play in a university context. And it was this thoughtful, responsible, and ambitious leadership by Courtney Muller that was evident throughout the production. I mean, she leveraged the institutional resources necessary to have Larissa Fasthorse present as a participant in the production, both for part of rehearsals as well as for the performances on opening weekend, which gave Santa Clara University students but and also the audiences for SCU shows the opportunity to interact with an acclaimed living contemporary playwright. And I was especially impressed by Moeller's work with her design team. In particular, Gerald Enos, who designed the set. To create a, a world on stage that amplified the play's delicate emotional calibration with precise attention to rich, culturally specific detail. And Moeller did what university, university theater directors in particular have to do, but pretty much every theater director should do, is she found a way to work with her actors, some of whom, according to their program bios, arrived at this production with substantial on stage experience, while others were comparatively inexperienced. With those actors, Moeller developed an on stage theatrical reality that accommodated the differences in experience. And technique and talent among her cast so that they four could create a shared, believable, and emotionally compelling world on stage. I thought everybody was great. I was especially captivated by Christy Chow in the central role of Journey, really tough role, but Christy Chow's angular athleticism really made sense to me. And then also both Maddie House Tuck and John Michael Hansen as Evan Atwood and Rebel Shaws, respectively, brought, they, were, they had a lot of experience before the show and they really brought that in ways that helped helped hear the language in particular in Fast Horse's play. And then Christopher Denton, who played Calvin Goodeagle, this was his first big role, a young actor who is primarily a dancer, broad and an emotional openness that was just really central to the way the whole play worked. So what Moeller did was what every good director does, and especially what every director in the university context has to do, is find a way to work with the strengths that arrived to the stage to build a world together, And it really did so to create a compelling and captivating world on stage. The production was not perfect. I'm raving about the show, but the production was not perfect. No theater production ever is. And indeed, that is university theater productions are expected to not be perfect. I mean, here, the learning curve of each actor was occasionally visible. And there were moments that even in the set that I loved so much, I wondered whether that realistic unit set really served the very important transformations of the final scene. But even so... That team of actors, designers, and technicians captured the play's intricate emotional texture, its many intellectual provocations, all with a truly captivating verve. So, in addition to being a culturally responsible and artistically ambitious production, Courtney Moller's staging of What Would Crazy Horse Do? confirmed not only why Fast Horse's brilliant play had been selected for that inaugural Kilroy's List in 2014, but Moeller's staging also made for a great experience of the theater. So that's what Stinky Lulu has to say about What Would Crazy Horse Do? by Larissa Fast Horse as staged by Courtney Moeller at the Department of Theater and Dance at Santa Clara University in Santa Clara, California in May of 2016. As always, thanks so much for listening. And if you have something you would like to say to Stinky Lulu, just shoot me a message at Stinky Lulu on both Twitter and Instagram. If you prefer email, you can email me there, StinkyLulu at gmail.com. And if you've got feedback, suggestions, questions, requests, I give no promises that I'll respond, even if I do receive one. I probably will, because I haven't received any. But I do promise that I'm always interested to know what you are thinking about what Stinky Lulu says. So until next time, give a thought to what you think educational theater is for, and in particular, what good university theater might be able to do. It's because Courtney Muller's production of Larissa Fast Horse's play, What Would Crazy Horse Do?, stands out to me as perhaps an exemplar of what university theater productions, at their best, can contribute to the American theater both within and beyond the university setting because one of the mistakes that we make as university theater makers is thinking that we are the receiver of the great plays of other places instead of understanding that the resources as well as the license to fail that university theater productions have might be leveraged in service of forwarding some of the most pressing conversations in the American theater today. And in this case, with this small production at a small college in Northern California, I feel we saw a small example of just how powerful the contributive university theater stage can be to the broader spectrum of American theater. At least that's what Stinky Lulu says.